There's a man in the New Testament, and you can read his story in Mark chapter 9, who in the face of unbearable anxiety, looking like he was going to lose his closest and dearest, cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that desperate and very honest prayer resonates with most of us, doesn't it? We, we do, by God's grace, believe. But often we're not thinking so much about what we believe, but we are noticing and sometimes tormented by what we don't believe or the struggle to believe. Belief and unbelief live in the same hearts at the same time. And that's the complicated thing about Christian faith. We do believe, and we thank God for our belief, but we are often tormented by our unbelief. And we struggle to know what God is doing when the life of faith is so hard. We looked at Hezekiah's faith last week in chapters 18 to 19. And it's a case of, Lord, I believe. He in those incredible times of personal and national stress and crisis, perhaps didn't seem to believe really so strongly. But as we we looked at his story, he believed in a God who was strong, a God who was merciful, a God who honored those tentative steps of belief. And 2 Kings 20 is is a two-parter. We do see real belief and we'll be taken to the heart of true faith in this first episode, up to verse 11. But we also see Hezekiah's struggle and failure to believe in the second half of the episode. And we're really kind of left with that impression, the difficulties of belief and the mistakes he makes. I'm even going to suggest we see the heartlessness of true unbelief. So we're going to walk through Hezekiah's difficult journey and see where he aces and where he bombs, though that sounds almost a bit flippant. And we're going to match him with our experience and we're going to look up to Jesus. And we're going to take our thoughts and our worship to the Lord's table. So let's look at the heart of true faith. This enormous Assyrian crisis has been happening and it it, it ranges over these long chapters, chapter 18 and chapter 19. And here's my confession, maybe it's yours as well. We get to chapter 20 and we think, good, we're out of the woods. And here's Hezekiah in later life. This is like an appendix after the crisis. Because on the first reading, it looks like that. Uh, the, the Assyrian crisis is done and dusted. The army's mown down. The, the people of Judah and Jerusalem have, have, have got away. And God gets the glory. And so this is, this is a later career excerpt. And in those days is, 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 is not time specific, is it? But just look down, would you please, to verse 6, which is time specific. The second sentence in our translations, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Well, look back to uh, the end of chapter 19, and probably even the hand of the king of Syria, they've been chopped off. Certainly the army had been decimated. So we're thinking, oh, no, not, not another crisis. And actually what the historian is saying, no, 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 this is in this crisis. 
So chapter 20 comes within the details of chapter 18 and 19. Before we say, well, that's confused, I wouldn't write it like that. Let's let the historian write as he feels best. Let's give him the space to say, people of God, here are two crucial lessons you must learn. They're so important. I've lifted them out of this crisis to show you a man's personal crisis because it's so often ours. And as, as the historian shows us Hezekiah and the strengths and the weaknesses of his faith, he will then point us to the greater king. So we're in about 701 BC. And the king is critically ill. Or at least he didn't think he was. But he became ill and he was at the point of death. Whether he knew he was at the point of death or not, we don't know. But word comes to him through the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord says, verse 1, put your house in order. Get the receipts, Hezekiah. Make sure your will is what you want it to be. Gather your family around. You're going to die. Hezekiah, you won't recover. I've been thinking a lot this week about the horrible, horribleness of what it must be like to receive not just a health scare, but a terminal diagnosis. But I don't think any of us can appreciate any of that horror, not even perhaps if it happens to somebody fairly close to us. It, it, it has to be us for us to get how horrendous that will be. Hezekiah is, of course, devastated. We don't know if he has ushered Isaiah away at this point in verse 2. And he's trying to hide his emotion or, or whether he's had him dismissed. But he turns his face to the wall. It's, it's a picture of isolation and desperate, desperate desolation. And in his bitter tears, he prays. Let's not miss here or ascribe bad motives to Hezekiah in verse 3. Because it's easy to think, oh, Hezekiah, come on. How faithful have you been? How wholehearted has your devotion been? Have you done that much good in God's eyes? I mean, would any of us say that to God? I think, well, God will reverse the diagnosis because it's us and we've been so good. But lest we jump on this and jump on Hezekiah and say he's not very self-aware, we don't have the same reaction, do we, when we read the many psalms, including the psalms of David, where the psalmist is saying, Lord, deal with me according to my righteousness and according to my faithfulness. We don't want to overlook often the same psalms where, where God is seeing and dealing with the person well for the lives they have lived. Think of Psalm 91. You could turn to it. I'll read you the three verses which close out the psalm. Psalm 91, verses 14 to 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. There are seven great promises premised upon, we will say, the grace of God, but also, verse 14, 
the love of this servant of God for the Lord. And God's heart is moved to bless and to protect and to answer and to be with and to deliver and to honor and to give him long life. Very much Old Testament categories of blessing. Remember the Old Testament or covenant blessings were very much this worldly. Your life, your land, your animals, your crops, your family, your health. Signs of the favor of God upon his people in the promised land. We're out of the promised land. We're in a new covenant with God. Things are different. But here, Hezekiah, I don't think is, is praying the prayer of a proud, unself-aware man. But he's praying the prayer of a stressed and broken-hearted servant who has striven to be faithful, wholehearted, and live his life well. So his tears are bitter. And the response is immediate. Isaiah is just leaving and has to go back. Do you notice? The word of the Lord comes as he is leaving Hezekiah's presence. God says, tell Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. And in three days, you'll go from deathbed to temple. You'll go from desperate, anxious, stressed tears to shouts and prayers and offerings of worship. Verse 5. And I won't just give you a few more days, a few more years. I will give you 15 years, Hezekiah. And the blessings I'm going to show you. Remember, this is within the Assyrian crisis. I will show to the city. I will defend this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. That's where deliverance will come from, from God. And he will defend the city from the Assyrians. And he will do it, notice, for my sake. And for the sake of my servant, David. And that's the second reference, if you notice it, to David within, within that reported divine speech. The Lord, Isaiah, uh, communicates is the, the Lord, the God of your father, David. And he will defend, Isaiah says, God will defend the city for the sake of my servant David. So the Lord is, is bringing David to Hezekiah's attention and to ours. The great king, very flawed, king who fell, but a king upon whom God set his favor and gave him a promise that he would bless his descendants and ultimately set one on an everlasting throne. So God is saying that his covenant purposes are on track. Did God change his mind? Well, let's deal with that one quickly. Do we have a God who can change his mind? Uh, first, you want to say, I really hope we don't, but that would be silly. Because the fact is, we have a God who does not change his mind. But he can speak to Isaiah, to Hezekiah in a way that, that makes Hezekiah melt away with fear and plead that God would show mercy. So, of course, with our minds, knowing the way they work and the world we're in, it looks as if God is changing his mind. But God put this test to Hezekiah's faith, which brings Hezekiah the fright of his life, draws him into dependence upon God, and glories in God's mercy. And at no point Hezekiah is saying, God, you're playing with me, you're messing with me. 
Hezekiah knew he was gravely ill and then trusted in the word of God to give him life again. Isaiah, prepare a poultice of figs for this boil. Awful word boil, isn't it? And a poultice of figs doesn't sound very nice too. But God is using medical means to bring about this incredible, miraculous cure. We, growing up, had a very strange, very eccentric neighbor, and she swore by a medical remedy, a bread poultice. Now, some of you who are older might know a bread poultice. I swear by them. It is a wonder cure. I won't talk about it now, but if you want to, if you've got all sorts of ailments, I'll tell you what a bread poultice could do and how to prepare one. But it does sound odd, doesn't it? But it's just that God is using means for Isaiah, trust, for Hezekiah trustingly to receive And he does. They applied it to the boil, and so he recovered. Again, be sensitive to the time frame in verse 8. Because, of course, he has been healed. And if we think, ah, he's been healed, then verse 8, because it comes afterwards, he's asking for what the sign will be of God's healing. Well, then the servants can say politely, well, my Lord, you've just been healed, so you don't need to sign. Obviously, the request is made before the healing comes. He is amazed that this promise could come, that he will go up to the temple of the Lord in three days when he's on his deathbed. And Isaiah is happy before he's healed to give him, to give him options. Hezekiah, you've got option A, you've got option B. Do you want the sun to go forwards down the steps? Or rather the shadow of the sun, because shadows always go forwards, but Hezekiah, if you like, the Lord will speed that up. Or do you want it to go backwards? And verse Hezekiah, he says, B please, Isaiah. Shadows always go forwards with the sun. But imagine Hezekiah thinking, imagine if a shadow could go backwards. That would be crazy. That would be miraculous. That would be the sign that anybody would believe that God is going to show his favor. That is his request. And I wonder, I don't wonder, the books I've read wonder, and I think they're right. The commentators who reflected this say, is this in some sense an enactment of the miracle that Hezekiah's got himself? It looks as if his life is going to run out. That shadow is speeding down those steps. The life of a very sick man. But in those 15 years, it's as if death has been pushed away. In that great distance, the gift of 15 years. Is this an episode then about Hezekiah's faith? Well, I think the episode is many things. I think there's all sorts of things to reflect upon. But but certainly the question of faith is there, isn't it? Hezekiah is brokenhearted, very stressed, prays for God's mercy. We find ourselves... Broken-hearted, very stressed, but sometimes slow to pray for God's mercy. Sometimes we just overthink, we obsess, we get stuck. And if somebody says, are you really praying about this? Have you asked others to pray with you? Have you called the elders together, as James 5 says you can, and ask them to anoint you in the name of the Lord and pray with you? Because that's what we do from time to time. Are we really praying and 
when we pray? Are we believing? It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. The heart of true faith is sometimes nothing less than, and certainly nothing more than, we're in a great crisis. We do believe God is great. We pray. He works for his glory. It's all his grace. It's all his mercy. He raises us up. We worship him. We go on. Try it. And see. At which point I think I just want to remind you before we go on of the great verse of Psalm 37 verse 4. Psalm 37 verse 4. I'll say the first half and if you're brave enough to know the second half, speak up please. Delight yourself in the Lord. Thank you. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that does not mean that you can checkmate God. We all are excited, aren't we, about a God who gives us the desires of our hearts. And then a moment's reflection on our hearts, we think, gosh, I want all sorts of things which are dark and not helpful, and possibly not within the Lord's will. And the Lord's will must always prevail. He gives healing if he chooses. He brings sickness if that is his will. But if we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we really through the attentive study of Scripture and the sincere worship of God and that life of prayerfulness, if we really delight ourselves in God and who he is, whatever he works out, we will know is good and wise and merciful and is in our lives designed to lead us towards Christ-likeness. And that's where our desire will be. To be walking closely with Jesus in the thrills of answer prayer as well as the difficulties of prayers which unanswered when or how we wanted them to be. God will get the glory and he's always good. Try him. Lean hard on his promises. But let's look at the second half of this episode. It sounds harsh to say the heartlessness of true unbelief. But, but there are some lessons here which we need to look into, which very sadly don't reflect so well on our king. Again, the time mark is open, isn't it? Verse 12, at that time. And we think, ah, at that time, ah, the king of Babylon. And we go, ah, Bible knowledge, Bible history, Bible background. So the Assyrian Empire is raised up and then it goes kaput. The next one, the Babylonian Empire. So we've moved on from the Assyrians. We're into the Babylonians. No, we're not. At that time means within this crisis, as the Assyrians are still the superpower before they have yet really ravaged or tried to... Well, they've been ravaging the towns and cities around Jerusalem. We saw that last week. Before they close in on Jerusalem, at that time, the prince of Babylon with this fabulous name, Merodach and Baladan, sends Hezekiah a so glad you're well card. He heard of Hezekiah's illness, verse 12, 
And they sent him a gift. He sent him, I don't know, some grapes. I should think some golden grapes. I should think he sent him something very impressive because he wanted to make his introduction to Hezekiah. The Assyrians were the top dogs, but the Babylonians were beginning to amass their power and their army. Yes, to defend themselves against the Assyrian threat if it came their way, but hey, whenever there's one empire, everybody knows there's going to be another one. The Babylonians were ambitious people. And maybe the prince of Babylon was sent by his dad, Baladan, to make opening inquiries about an alliance, a mutual defense pact. The king of Judah and the Babylonian empire, we could do great things together, I think is the insinuation as the prince comes to visit Hezekiah. The Assyrians were almost literally at the gate. And so when Hezekiah receives the messengers, what's he thinking, verse 13? Is he thinking not another set of unbelievers? God's word warns me to not enter pacts and alliances and covenants with them. He should be thinking that. But hey, he just got over an illness. He'd had a really hard time. The Assyrians were threatening. They, they, they were eating up his little kingdom like locusts. And they were after the prize of Jerusalem. And suddenly this seems like the answer to his prayers comes with his entourage up to the palace. It's, it's, it's the great and the good and the powerful of the powerful kingdom of the Babylonians. So he receives the messengers and shows them, verse 13, that he is quite a player. That he is quite a guy. That in his storehouses were fabulous amounts of wealth. Wealth, of course, to show that if they wanted this mutual defense pact, they could be at least equal partners. He had silver, gold, spices, fine oil, weapons, and everything. And it was all shown. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah didn't show them. So I think he's really saying, look, if you, if you want to make a, a covenant, you've come to the right place. And of course, if we turn back to 1816, not the date, chapter 18, verse 16, what do we read? The Assyrians carted all this wealth off. Hezekiah saying, look at my fabulous wealth. And by extension, look how fabulous I am. But it didn't work. Because the Assyrians got there first. And Hezekiah had to pay them off. He wanted to cut a deal. But in this moment, he forgot as we often do when things are critical, and suddenly it looks like we've got help. He'd forgotten that God had cut a deal with him and with his forefathers. The word for deal is not a biblical word. Think covenant. Cutting or making a covenant is a biblical phrase. And Hezekiah was standing in a line of people with whom God had made various covenants. And Hezekiah, remember that name David, keeps coming through. 
is a descendant of King David, with whom God had made a unique and exclusive covenant to promise security, prosperity, and blessing. And it's just like our temptation, isn't it? That we get through a scrape, we get through a crisis, we get through a time when God shows himself to be so kind and good to meet us in his mercy. And then almost we wake up the next day and there's a new situation and we totally walk away from God and forget everything we've ever learned. The God who has been strong and proud to us is a God who in that crisis we forget to think about. Or if we're thinking about it, think we've got a better answer. Now, two kings is, is very polite about Hezekiah, very affirming. And it pains the historian to point out his weaknesses and problems. Two Chronicles is, <laughs> is polite. But listen to this verse, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25. Of this episode, at this moment, the chronicler says, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 5, Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Hezekiah stands as as the head of his people. But in his pride, he falls. And it's as if God's, God's wrath on his people have been, has been heaping up and heaping up and heaping up through these decades of, of unbelief and idolatry. And Hezekiah maybe is a man who could avert that wrath through his obedience. But he wants to enter into a covenant with pagans because his heart was too proud to remember the kindness of the Lord. And gosh, that's timely, isn't it? And that's for us. Our hearts know so much of the Lord's daily, moment-by-moment kindness. But when the test comes, when there are easier ways of getting through life than the hard walk of faith, how quickly... How easily and effortlessly and unthinkingly we turn aside. I think of an episode perhaps five years ago where I saw a big answer. Somebody had walked into my life. I thought, that's the answer. And I, and I grabbed that situation. I grabbed that opportunity. And a little voice said to me, hang on, you've not prayed about this. You're just thinking that's getting the solution to your problems. And I respond to that little answer, well, of course it will be. And of course the Lord will bless it, because he's generously bought the situation, this remedy. And it wasn't the Lord's remedy. And it didn't work. And it wasn't a step of obedience. And you may have your own. Life's complicated You're exhausted. Your guard was down. And suddenly, here came the envoys with all their wealth wanting to be your special friend and help you out or change the situation. 
Our historian is saying, look at Hezekiah. He's David's son, but like David. After all that true faith and obedience, his heart was proud. And it was a disaster. Isaiah submits him to a brief but firm interrogation. Who are these people? Verse 14. Where are they from? Tell me the conversation. What did they see? Hezekiah. And it's difficult to know if Hezekiah is very proud at this point or quite sheepish. Is he the toddler that's been cornered with a chocolate biscuit in each fist? Or is he bursting with pride at the opportunity to tell Isaiah how wise and brave and decisive he's been? Probably, I think, the second. But he is not expecting, verse 16, the Lord's word to come as it has. All these riches, everything, and of course in brackets, all that the Assyrians haven't carted off, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Verse 17. And of your descendants, Hezekiah, some of your own flesh and blood will become, the word could be officials, could be even more painful than that, it could be eunuchs. But definitely they will serve, not in this palace, but the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, your reign will come to an end and your descendants will suffer terribly. It seems in verse 19 that Hezekiah is being a little bit weaselly. Ah, oh, well, the word of the Lord you have spoken is, is good. Oh, good, it won't happen in my life. I wonder if Hezekiah is saying, hmm, well, God's, God must have his way. His word cannot be broken. There are hard times coming, but he, he humbly accepts that. But there's something terribly sad, isn't there, in that question. Will there not be peace and security in my life? There is something selfishly sad, which may be challenged with our hearts. There are hard times ahead, but actually that's just for the grandkids. I will be okay. The great temptation, isn't it, of our advancing years is to look for comfort, to avoid the hard things, the difficult situations. We think we've, we've done our time. We've been at the front line. We've sacrificed. We've lived by faith. Just find us the slippers, the remote control, turn the heating up, give us comfort and ease. I think that's the Hezekiah spirit here. And we must watch against that. That does not honor the Lord. It does not speak of true faith. It is often, and you'll know this, that Christians mess up in later life. And yesterday's faith will never bring us today's discipleship and is never an insurance for tomorrow's believing faith. So this second part of our episode reminds us we must be on guard always. Eternal salvation demands eternal vigilance today, this evening, continuing in the faith. Briefly, very briefly,
as we come to the table, learning from the king. Just want to underline some of the things I know you've already seen. Learning from the king. Hezekiah. He lived with more faith when he was sick and stressed than when he felt he was out of the woods and seemingly help was on its way. Let's have that sit with us. Why is the Lord keeping some of us sick? Why is there stress? Why is there pain? Why is there difficulty in our lives? Because that's where the Lord needs us to be. And though we can't see it, we need to be there. Because there we will be humble and prayerful and needing the Lord. It's, we know this, we tell ourselves it, but it's so hard that we need to fear the easier days of life because we're often not alert to their temptations and dangers. Hezekiah reminds us of 1 Corinthians 10.12, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 10.12, if anyone thinks he stands firm, let him be aware lest he fall. Is Hezekiah like David? Yes and no. But of course, as we think about learning from the king, and we're both instructed and warned through Hezekiah's life in this chapter, we look to David's great king. Jesus, who comes like King David in the line of King David, and Jesus, who goes through the greatest tests of faith, And is obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus, who doesn't say, well, as long as my life has peace and security, as long as I can live the longest life. Jesus, who cuts short his life and who forfeits his peace and security for for whose? For ours that we may be peaceful and secure in the love of God. That's Christ's compassion upon us. And the sign at his dying, the sky went dark. There were shadows everywhere. His suffering, his compassion for us, and his obedience, he is our covenant keeper. This king failed in the test of faith, Hezekiah. Our king kept the covenant with his father and now opens the covenant of the father's love to us. And in bread and wine, as we come to receive bread and wine, we say, it's it's all about Jesus. It's his suffering for me. It's his compassion for me. It's his obedience in my place. And we remember 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. And we say we will not believe in vain. Loving Father, thank you for the instruction of this passage. Thank you for our covenant-keeping King, by whose wounds we are healed. Keep us in the faith vigilant and believing each day as we're kept by your power. Amen.